Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 59th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is law firms begin forming data breach practice groups. We're delighted to welcome today's guest. Martin T. Tully is a partner with the Chicago office of Ackerman LLP. He is a veteran trial lawyer with more than two decades of experience representing domestic and multinational companies in a variety of complex commercial litigation matters. As a co-chair of Ackerman's data law practice, Martin also focuses on keeping clients ahead of the curve regarding the developing law, technology, and best practices related to e-discovery, information governance, and data security, whether in litigation, regulatory, or other contexts. He is an active member of the Sedona Conference Working Group 1, the Seventh Circuit e-discovery pilot program committee, and the Trial Practice Courtroom Technology Subcommittee of the American Bar Association's Technology for the Litigator Committee. Martin has written and presented extensively on e-discovery, digital evidence, information governance, and legal technology. Thanks for joining us today, Martin. Well, thank you for having me, Sharon and John. I'm delighted to join both of you today. Martin, the title of our podcast refers to data breach practice groups because we think data breaches have primarily been the driver for forming what your firm calls its data law group. Would you agree with that in general, and was that a primary driver for your firm? Sharon, I would definitely agree that that was a driver as data security and data privacy are some of the fastest growing concerns of organizations of all types. Uh, There are a number of key studies that indicate that this is a major and growing concern for uh, just about every company and just about every company is affected. Uh, To give you an example, just a few stats, uh, the average company experienced more than 91 million security events in 2013, according to the IBM Cybersecurity Intelligence Index. 33% of Fortune 100 organizations will experience an information crisis by 2017, according to uh, Gartner. Uh, And as more corporate infrastructure moves online, uh, Juniper Research predicts that the rising number and impact of data breaches will cost $2.1 trillion globally by 2019. That's about four times the estimated costs of breaches in 2015. With stats like these, uh, this just underscored to us the compelling reason to gather the experience and expertise that we had in this area to meet our client needs, even before they realize that they need them. Wow, that's amazing stats, boy. Um, Martin, take us through the process of how your, your firm decided on this, this new law group, the, the size of it, the kind of expertise, talents that you were looking for, and exactly what, what do you folks do within your law firm? Sure, uh, John. And the good news is we already had an excellent e-discovery practice here at Ackerman, and we were in the midst of expanding our information governance practice and now seeing the growing demand, as I just mentioned, for data security and data privacy services. uh, This just seemed to be a, a logical grouping of those areas of expertise. Now, the purists will tell you that, of course, that these are three, are somewhat different disciplines, uh, and you can put them in the following buckets. You can say that e-discovery is about finding, uh, information governance is about managing, and data security and data privacy is about protecting data. 
uh, but they're obviously related enough that oftentimes a client who is either seeking or in need of assistance in one area often also needs or cannot afford not to consider more than one of them or all three of them. So it made sense to us to put them all under one umbrella, which we chose to call data law. Uh, it's short, it's sweet, and it conveys really what the practice is about. It's about many of the legal issues that pertain to data, something that is uh, ubiquitous and growing exponentially every single day in our environment. Our group uh, here at Ackerman, our data law practice group, has over 20 lawyers in it, spanning nine different Ackerman offices uh, with the two co-chairs, myself and Jeff Scherer, based here in Chicago, where I am at. Uh, the different members have different relevant experience, some more on the e-discovery side, some more on the information governance side, and some on the data security incident response side. Some have more practical experience, such as my 20-plus years as a complex commercial litigator in the trenches, and others have more technical experience. Uh, but collectively, uh, our team is well positioned to keep our clients ahead of the curve with developing law, technology, and best practices. And that kind of collective team approach to bringing different disciplines and experiences together is actually something that uh, is very important with respect to addressing these issues within most of the clients we serve. So how do you see the data breach, data privacy piece fitting in or coexisting with the e-discovery and information governance practices that have been emerging over the past five to ten years? As mentioned, there is a relation between them, although they are a little bit different. But the one thing, one of the things that they share in common is that client demand for legal services in these areas is increasing every year and showing no signs of slowing. Uh, there's spiraling costs and risks inherent in electronic discovery, as we all know. Uh, the proliferation of data privacy and security laws around the world and high-profile data breaches occurring seemingly on a daily basis and the massive corporate data stores growing at unprecedented rates have all combined together to move data law from the back office uh, to the boardroom, and it's really achieved a whole new prominence. More specifically, to answer your question, Sharon, uh, e-discovery practices, I would say, rose to prominence within the last 10 years, and were primarily focused on matter-level requirements, and the matter being a lawsuit, a subpoena, an investigation, and many would say that uh, the need for them was driven by fear of sanctions. Information governance practices are really hot these days uh, as the recession is more a distant thing in the rearview mirror of most companies. And there's a, a budget now to spend on information hygiene, as I like to call it. And there are, uh, we have more focus on organizational requirements in, in informational governance. And here the driver is fear of costs and loss of control. Data security, data privacy, that's the easiest one to explain. Um, I usually don't have to explain data security or data breach to someone, whereas I usually have to explain uh, to a, someone who's not familiar uh, what e-discovery is and what information governance is. Uh, all you have to do is say data breach, and just about anybody anywhere on a street corner will know what you're talking about. Um, and most people will figure out that that's very much akin to either having your credit card stolen or having lost it, uh, but the consequences are even worse. And here the current fear is really, or the, the need is really driven by fear of headlines and uh, large liability. The thread that ties all these three things together, of course, is the need to understand that clients' data, systems, and custodians in order to achieve superior results uh, at reasonable costs. Uh, the things that we talk about in each of these areas, such as education, conducting gap analyses to see where things can be improved, uh, weighing risks, proportionality, and prevention and cure are common to all three of these areas. So, so I see them being uh, very much in coexistence going forward as they all three grow. 
so Martin, are you just seeing the, this kind of movement only in law firms or also in, in non-legal firms? And, and how do you see the two of them possibly working together going forward? I definitely see, because of the growing demand for services in all three of these areas, uh, there are a, a number of different organizations and companies that are providing services in this space. Clearly, we all know uh, of the numerous firms that are involved in the e-discovery space, uh, both legal and non-legal. Uh, that's also arising in the information governance space, as you see uh, accounting firms and other consulting outfits uh, providing information governance consulting in a non-legal environment. And in the data security space, uh, particularly because of the high-profile breaches that we've had, there is an increased demand for uh, technical companies, uh, the ones who don't provide legal advice, but they actually are the ones that are finding out what the cause was of a breach or a loss and then figuring out what can be done within an organization's systems and parameters to mitigate or avoid the chance of one in the future. What I predict is that we're going to see more and more uh, strategic partnerships amongst these different types of entities, uh, legal and non-legal and technical alike, uh, because really to bring a complete solution to most clients, there are different components that have to be brought to bear, and I don't think any one of them can do it all. So I think you're going to see a convergence of that and more collaboration uh, in the future to better serve clients. Well, I think you've certainly established that there is a, a rising need uh, and request by clients for these kinds of services. But what kind of services seem to interest them most and how fast is this demand increasing? Well, certainly with respect to matter or incident-driven types of services, e-discovery and uh, data security. It's the event that drives a lot of the need. There's a lawsuit, there's a subpoena, there's a government investigation or request for information. With a data breach, obviously, if one occurs or there's a data loss, then that drives the need. But what we're seeing now post-recession is more and more organizations starting to think proactively in this space, you know, how do I avoid being the next data breach? Um, what do I do with the pallets of backup tapes that we have sitting in a warehouse somewhere? Uh, how do I better manage my workflows for the next piece of litigation so that I don't have an enormous sticker shock uh, when I get my, my invoice from either my law firm or from my outside vendor? So we're seeing and we're finding that there's uh, spend in the budgets of more and more companies to look at these issues, uh, whether it's practicing good information hygiene or reducing costs for serial litigants. Uh, we're seeing requests for uh, data remediation projects in the information governance space. This is the example where a client says, I have all this stuff. Can you help me defensibly get rid of it so that we can reduce our storage and other related costs for that data? E-discovery, as mentioned, is where you'll have, uh, for example, a serial litigant that is in search of a better, lower-cost workflow. And in data security, it's clients requesting a, a checkup, if you will, or a gap analysis to figure out where do we stand in terms of our level of security, can we do better, what does it cost us, what's the risk of not doing it, and do we have a plan in place for responding to an incident should one occur. Well, Martin, around here, we, we find that the first client meeting after a data breach is aptly named the, the upchuck hour. So what, what has your experience been when you have to outline to clients how to proceed after data breaches, especially for those that don't have an incident response plan? 
Uh, I think the upchuck hour is probably a very polite way to describe it. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's definitely a high risk of exasperational paralysis when a client learns of a intrusion or a data breach or even the CEO's laptop that was left in the back of a cab somewhere. Uh, but one has and one should uh, invoke the remain calm and carry on motto with clients. Um, as a litigator, uh, I can tell you that these incidents can make a TRO proceeding seem tame by comparison because of the high level of anxiety. But I'm reminded of Douglas Adams' novel, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and there was on the cover of that device was imprinted the words, don't panic. It was put there because the device looked insanely complicated to operate, and this language was on there partly to keep intergalactic travelers from panicking. <laughs> Famous science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke uh, said that uh, Douglas Adams' use of this phrase, don't panic, in his novel was perhaps the best advice that could be given to humanity. Well, taking it out of the science fiction realm and into our realm, uh, yes, this can appear to be insanely complicated to clients and also highly dangerous. Uh, but don't panic is a good piece of advice. Uh, this is why a incident response plan, plan is so key, because you really have to figure out what happened, what's the severity level, what needs to be done, and that really, really helps the situation. So if there is no incident response plan, walking a client through those steps, obviously in a, in a very short period of time, given the urgency of the situation, is key. One other thing on that real quickly um, is not every situation is as urgent as it might sound. We hear data breach and everyone immediately freaks out. But if you were to read a story in the newspaper or on the 10 o'clock news about how some masked men went into a bank and uh, accessed the vault uh, but left with nothing, uh, it wouldn't be as serious as if they had uh, taken $10 million. Uh, in the former example, there the real focus is on how did it happen, how do we prevent it from happening again, but there actually was no harm and no need to notify any account holders. So a lot of it depends upon very quickly ascertaining the, the severity of the incident, what happened, and who's affected. Great. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Well, this is normally the spot in our show where we hear words from our sponsors. This potentially represents a unique opportunity for you. Digital Detectives is seeking sponsors. You can hear your advertisement right here. If you're interested, contact the team at Legal Talk Network at info at legaltalknetwork.com. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is law firms begin forming data breach practice groups. Our guest is Martin Tully, a partner with the Chicago office of Ackerman LLP, who is the co-chair of Ackerman's data law practice group. Martin, do you think we're seeing so many breaches because security is poor or because it is hard to defend against a sophisticated attack, no matter how much money and time you've dumped into your defenses? Or is it some combination? Sharon, it's a combination and then some. Number one, you're finding situations where organizations just don't have the security protocols in place, whether it's technologically or procedurally or policy-wise, and that leads to problems because they're just not very secure uh, in either their uh, 
technological parameters, their firewalls, or their, their practices. In other instances, uh, yes, you were absolutely seeing more and more sophisticated attacks and a growing network of targets. I'm reminded of a few years ago when um, I believe it was a representative of the Department of Justice spoke to a room full of lawyers and said that the new number one target of hackers worldwide were law firms. Reason being is that the hackers had realized that a lot of the principal targets, financial institutions and whatnot, had hardened their security and making it more difficult to be hacked. But these same institutions were openly and freely sharing information, sensitive information, with their accountants, their lawyers, and consultants. And the hackers were quickly figuring out that the latter group of organizations were much softer and easier targets. So the message to the audience was, law firms beware, uh, you need to um, harden your targets as well and increase your security. There's one piece, though, that uh, you mentioned that I think there's really no way around, and that is the human element. No matter how much security you put into place, uh, there's always someone within an organization that can unravel the entire tapestry. And some of the high-profile data breaches that we've read about in the last few years uh, involve a distinctly human element that, absent uh, different choices, uh, really uh, couldn't have prevented the breach that took place. The other thing, uh, just going back to the sophistication of the attacks, is the strong desire to access this information. Uh, I mentioned earlier I, the bank robbery example, uh, and, and data is the new currency, whether it's uh, personal information, identity information, financial information. Uh, it reminds me of the 1930s bank robbery movies when uh, the, uh, the, the vehicle would pull up to the bank and the Tommy guns would blare and the masked men would run inside and run out with money. That doesn't happen anymore so much, but uh, with data being the new currency, you're seeing it happening more and more in cyberspace. Well, Martin, can you talk a little more detail about how important incident response plans are and, and kind of what should be included within them? Absolutely. Uh, they are indispensable. Uh, number one most critical thing is to have an incident response plan. Uh, I'm reminded of the National Fire Protection Association's Plan Not to Burn campaign, uh, which basically <laughs> at the household level uh, told homeowners and families that you need to have a plan for what happens if you wake up in the middle of the night and you smell smoke and the living room's on fire. How are you going to get out? Where are you going to meet? Who's going to do what in the event of that kind of an emergency uh, to make sure that everybody gets out safely? Uh, that's a metaphor for what a good incident response plan needs to, to be is, number one, it's the old cliche of uh, failing to plan is planning to fail. But part of that is also making sure that you have identified who needs to be involved in the exercise, not just the exercise of, res exercise of responding to an incident, but involved in the exercise of coming up with the incident response plan in the first place. Uh, like information governance and like e-discovery, it's very important to bring together the different functions within an organization to make sure that everybody knows what their role is in the event of an incident. Uh, obviously, IT is important. Public relations, corporate communications can be involved. The chief information officer, executive staff, in-house legal, outside legal, and other functions within the organization 
need to uh, come together in the time of the response to make sure they all know their place, know their role, and what it is that they're supposed to do. An incident response plan uh, in general uh, should cover a number of things, and I would say that uh, those should include but are not limited to, number one, what is your method by which to monitor or detect an intrusion or a breach? And, and in this instance, I'm talking about a situation where there's an external attack upon an organization's systems or an intrusion of some sort. Uh, but it can also be, in other contexts, as mentioned, someone leaving an unencrypted laptop in the back of a, uh, of a New York taxi cab. Uh, it may not be that kind of intrusion. Uh, but what, are the, what is the process for identifying that incident? Uh, how do you know whether one has happened? Uh, number two is defining what is an incident. And this goes into the discussion of what is an incident, should be defined in the plan, and there should be some pre-existing methodology by which to determine the severity level of the incident, which then will dictate what steps may have to be taken. Uh, reporting should be covered. Uh, reporting of the incident to who? Internally and externally, if necessary. Uh, when does it need to be reported? Again, going back to severity level, is this an urgent issue or is it a non-urgent issue for the particular organization? Uh, a plan should also cover what preservation or forensic analysis plan there should be for determining uh, what happened and preserving the evidence to be able to conduct a proper analysis and, if necessary, uh, prosecute a claim or even coordinate with the authorities. Speaking of authorities, uh, the plan should also touch upon who has the authority to act. This goes back to the composition of the incident response team. And the incident response team that gets pulled together in the event of a data breach uh, should be identified in advance and everyone given their particular role for what they're going to do in that eventuality. It should discuss what actions should be taken. Again, reporting, for example, depends upon the type of intrusion and what type of data is involved. Is it personal health information? Are there HIPAA reporting requirements? Uh, those are questions that should be spelled out in the plan uh, with direction given. Oversight should be covered uh, with respect to who is going to be overseeing the uh, efforts of the incident response team. Documentation of everything that is done through the process is also critical, uh, including things that are done at the IT level in terms of logging steps that are taken to determine what happened. Compliance with the plan is also key, which is why it should be tested periodically to make sure that it uh, is working. And another reason to audit and test the plan periodically is to determine whether or not changes need to be made to the plan based on change circumstances or functions within the organization. Those are just a few things. That was a brilliant summary, and, and you've segued beautifully into my next question, mm -hmm. which, which is about testing the plan itself. So how do clients protect themselves better by doing simulated data breach exercises? And tell us how you would actually go about performing that kind of exercise. Sure, and to put this in a little bit of a different uh, context, in the municipal environment, there is something called an emergency response plan where a municipality, a city, or a village, or a town will simulate a disaster of some sort, a tornado, a major fire, a tank car derailment in the middle of town. Who would do what in the event of that type of an exercise? And municipalities periodically will run what they call tabletop exercises, bringing together the police chief, uh, the fire chief, the head of public works, uh, the village manager, the city manager, as well as other key people. Um, and they will literally come into an emergency operations center with a uh, scenario that has not been previously disclosed 
and we'll run through it if something had happened. Uh, and literally everyone in the room will go through, in this eventuality, uh, I would do this. If they needed to contact the federal office of such and such, uh, that person would do this, crowd control, evacuation, whatever it might be. Very similar exercises uh, are starting to be done by companies with respect to uh, incident response plans and data breach. Uh, once a plan is put together and uh, vetted and approved by a company, uh, they'll go through exercises where they literally will do something very similar. All the members of the incident response team will come to a situation room, if you will, and walk through a scenario that was not previously disclosed. Uh, it could either be a system intrusion or the, the, the example I keep mentioning where the a chief financial officer's laptop was left in the back of a cab, uh, and everyone would walk through with their given role what they were to do in that situation. These tabletop exercises will often include members of the response team, such as outside vendors who may need to do the uh, forensic analysis or preservation of um, information and evidence necessary to analyze what happened and what to do about it going forward. Uh, may also involve representatives from the outside law firm representing the client uh, in terms of compliance and notification issues. And literally, uh, in the tabletop exercise, everyone will walk through what they would do if such an event had actually happened. Uh, so even though it's a test and only a test, and you would be notified of where to go for further information if there was a real emergency, um, these kind of exercises are really critical for reminding people what their role is. It, it serves as a training function, but it also tests the plan, and you can figure out if there are gaps in your plan that need to be addressed uh, before the real thing happens. Well, Martin, we're almost out of time here, and you kind of touched on this a little bit about the law firms, but notoriously, law firms, they've, they've done a pretty poor job in protecting their own data. What sort of changes have you seen in, in that arena and kind of what's driving those changes? Sure, John, and you're, and you're right. Uh, there's an old saying about the cobbler's children having no shoes. And sometimes lawyers and law firms can be the worst at following their own advice. What I'm seeing is more and more law firms looking introspectively with respect to their own security policies, data security policies, and getting better at practicing what they preach. Law firms in particular uh, have two challenges. One, they not only have the information and data for their own organization, and just like any other organization that they need to be mindful of, employee information, et cetera, et cetera, but then they also have custody of and the obligation to protect, ethical obligations to protect uh, information data of their clients. Uh, so there's a twofold obligation for law firms. And, and that's important for a very good reason. We're seeing that more clients, uh, whether they're financial services companies or whether they're companies in the healthcare space, are requiring security audits of their law firms. Remember the comment I made earlier about the Department of Justice saying that law firms with a soft underbelly for hackers? More and more clients are demanding that uh, their law firms demonstrate a certain level of security and that they follow certain practices that are at least as equivalent as the clients they serve in order to continue doing business for them. So law firms, I think, number one, are more cognizant of their needs as an organization, separate and apart from being a law firm, to be more compliant with best practices in data security and data privacy, but also uh, the demands of their clients are really driving this even further. I think this is a good experience on many levels because it makes us as lawyers better equipped to add value to our own clients. And it's something that at Ackerman, uh, we've gone through this process and revisit this process periodically uh, for all the reasons that I've just mentioned. It just makes good sense and uh, it, it makes us better able to add value to our clients. 
I'll tell you, as a data security company ourselves, that's what we are always doing is revisiting our own security because you're right, it is the cobbler's children all over again. Uh, I want to thank you a lot, Martin, for, for joining us today as our guest. I think you managed to pack 60 minutes of information into 25. And I know a lot of people who maybe were not so familiar with this subject that they really will have learned a lot from today. So again, thank you for being our guest. You were terrific. Well, John and Sharon, thank you so much for having me. It was really a delight, and uh, I appreciate it very much. Well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please review us on iTunes. And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and security services at SENSEIENT.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.